Okay, everyone, Steve here. When John and I started Eternal Leadership almost four years ago, we had two organizations that were instrumental in helping us get the word out about our new show. The first was Halftime Institute, who you've likely heard us talk at length about in episodes. Uh, by the way, their founder, Bob Buford, sadly just passed away this week. Uh, so our condolences go out to Halftime uh, for the loss of uh, just a great guy. The second organization that helped us out was Pinnacle Forum. And because of our similar visions, their support and encouragement in helping us get the word out, we just love them both. Well, Pinnacle and their president, Guy Rogers, who we've had on a couple times, have just launched a new podcast called Unleashing Your Leadership. We wanted to share this with you all in the hopes that you will add this to the list of shows that you listen to and help us help them by clicking subscribe rating and reviewing, all that jazz, downloading the episodes, etc. Please help us repay all the assistance they gave us. A link to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play are in the description of this MP3, as well as a link to the RSS feed. You can copy and paste it in whatever podcast player you listen to, or you can go to unleashingyourleadership.com and go straight to their podcast page and click those buttons. Thanks for helping us assist a great organization that was so generous to give John and I a hand when we got started. We love you, Guy, and are excited for this new chapter in Pinnacle's history. Here is Unleashing Your Leadership with host Guy Rogers and their guest, former governor and former presidential candidate, Mike Huckabee. Welcome to this episode of Unleashing Your Leadership. I'm Guy Rogers, President and CEO of Pinnacle Forum, and our mission here is transforming leaders to transform culture. We do this through a unique combination of our confidential forums, what we call our 4E strategy, encourage, equip, engage, and execute, and our target for cultural transformation, the seven key mountains of culture. I invite you to check out our website, pinnacleforum.com, to learn how these tactics work together to help influential leaders discover and live to their fullest potential, their God calling to help promote a flourishing, God-honoring culture. And when you go to the website, go to the About tab, scroll down to Leadership, and there's a place where you can actually schedule a video call with me if you'd like to find out more about Pinnacle Forum. What we're exploring in this podcast is how we can experience the unleashing of the servant leadership God has called us to. From recognized experts in the field of leadership, to Pinnacle Forum partners who are living it, our goal is to help you recognize and apply biblical and life principles that will help you in your journey to walk in the fullness of Christ-centered leadership. My guest today is Mike Huckabee, and I'm sure for you listeners, Mike really needs no introduction. He's the former governor of Arkansas, where he served for almost 11 years. He's been a candidate for president. He hosted a program on Fox News and now hosts a program on TBN called Huckabee. And his website is MikeHuckabee.com. And I'm honored to say Mike has been a friend since we first met in 1992. So welcome, Mike, to the program. Guy, thank you very much. Real pleasure to get to visit with you today. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. So, all right. So I want to begin with just a general question from your background. What would you say is the number one thing? through all the things you've done in, in the ministry world, the political world, the media world, the number one thing you have learned about leadership? Guy, I think the main feature of leadership is that 
true leaders don't ask others to do what they're unwilling to do. Now, it, it, it doesn't always work that a leader does everything he asks uh, other people to do because that may not be practical. But if you're leading people, you never want to give them in the impression, hey, I'm asking you to do this because I'm too good to do it. I want you to do this because it's beneath me. Uh, leadership is never about getting behind people and kicking in the, in the backside and saying, go do this. It's getting in front of people, modeling the behavior and saying, follow me, join me. Let's get this done. So I just believe that the fundamental thing that a leader has to do is to say, what am I asking of someone? And is it something that I would do if I were asked to do it? And if it's not, then maybe you shouldn't be asking other people to do it or get out in front and let everybody know in the organization, whatever that organization is, whether it's government, whether it's church, whether it's business, whether it's a volunteer organization, but to be very clear that good leadership is simply asking people to join you in a task and a goal that's worth doing, assigning them a job, but never assigning it to them because you give the impression that it's a job that's too small for you, the leader, um, but something you don't mind shoving off on another person. You know, I'm reminded when you say that of, and because you and I both have a background in the political world, of how it sure seems like there's this growing sense out there, you know, in the country that our, our government leaders, especially I would say at the, at the national level, have lost, many of them have lost this sense of what it means to be a servant leader. Uh, would you agree with that take, Mike? 100%. I think so many people get into political office and they begin to feel entitled. If they ride an elevator that's just for them, if they get on a cable car uh, that takes them from one building to the other that only they can ride, if somebody's always uh, catering to their every whim, and opening the door for them. It, there's just this sense over time that a person, even a good person, doesn't even realize what's happening to him or her. But they do begin to think that, you know, I'm really deserving of this, this attention, this, this uh, sense of entitlement. Right. right. And it's very dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to happen because ultimately we don't elect people in this country to be princes. We elect them to be servants. Our whole constitutional form of government is based on the notion that there are people called out from among us who are willing to serve their fellow citizens for a period of time and then come back home and uh, live under the laws they passed. But we're increasingly overwhelmed with people who see politics as a profession, look at it as a career. They expect a retirement program, which yep. I don't think should ever be a part of any political office. Um, and as a result, we really have created a monster and the monster is devouring us. And I'll be very fair to tell you, it doesn't really matter whether it's Democrats or Republicans in power. Right. Uh, the same kind of mentality begins to uh, uh, permeate uh, that institution. And it's, uh, it's very sad to see. And I think it's why there's such an anger and frustration out there among voters today. So, so for the Christian who is called to leadership in 
that particular, that, that mountain of culture, the government mountain. But I would say, you know, in the media mountain, in the arts and entertainment mountain, those same temptations certainly exist, but maybe they're just more pronounced and more obvious in, in, the, in the government mountain. But so, so for the Christian who is called to have a role of servant leadership as an elected official or a, a leader of a, of, a, of a film studio, what would be your counsel to, to those of us that we walk in that place but not get consumed by the environment that we're in that you've just described? A lot has to do with staying true to your uh, – being close to the friends who were your friends before you got a title or a position uh, or some level of visibility. Being also connected to a local church – I don't say that in a trite way, but I think you need to be involved in a church in a serving capacity, not just to go in and sit down and hear the music and hear the sermons, but to do something that puts you in a, uh, a true servant role. For example, at my church, I work in the parking lot. That's what I do. I drive a golf cart, bring people up to hmm. the door, and I direct traffic. Now, that's not a glamorous job. Uh, I don't want it to be a glamorous job. I'm, I'm sure I could have volunteered for something that would have given me a little more uh, prestige. But quite frankly, it was important to me uh, to be able to do something that was out of character for someone who would run a state and who would run for president and who runs a television show. I wanted to do something that, that made me more normal. And I'm always trying to be very mindful whenever I'm dealing with people. Um, it's a simple thing that I believe my mother taught me. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. What Jesus taught us and drilled into me by my mother was you just treat other people like you would want them to treat you. So whether it's a server at a restaurant, whether it's the flight attendant, the gate agent when I'm flying, which is something I do four or five days a week. Right. No matter what it is, I try to ask myself, if these roles were reversed, how would I want to be treated? And then I try to treat people like that. I don't always succeed, but I like to. And if it's a television show, I may be the guy on this spotlight, but I want to be mindful that really I've got the easiest job in the whole production. It's those camera guys. It's the people running the audio board. It's the people that no one ever even thinks about. They're the real key to making it work. Well, this completely cuts against the grain of popular notions of leadership uh, in the sense of, you know, people who are in positions of authority, positions of power. Uh, and it seems to me that, that we as Christians were really called to, to levels of influential leadership. If we could be living more like what you're talking about every day, and I like your point about consciously reminding yourself, how would I like to be treated if I was that other person? That we would be sending a strong message to those around us about what separates us, what sets us apart from those who don't know Christ. Would you agree? Absolutely. It's so awful to say, yeah, that guy, he claims to be a Christian, but he sure is arrogant. I think that whole idea that one is filled with a sense of self-importance, uh, with an arrogant pride, there's nothing that is more unchristlike like than arrogant pride. 
the one thing Jesus modeled for us was what it meant to be, uh, to be blunt, what it meant to be God. And he washed the feet of his disciples. He uh, took time for little children who couldn't do anything for him. There was no reciprocity involved in his uh, doing something kind and gracious for a child. And when his disciples uh, said, you know, those are little kids. Let's uh, get those little kids away from him. He's an important person. Right, right. And he said in the old King James Version, suffer not the children to come unto me. Basically, don't forbid those kids to get near me because they're more important than any of you are. And it would be better uh, to have a millstone hanged about your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea than to offend one of these little ones. Those are powerful things that Jesus taught us. I mean, we hear them in Sunday school or church, but have we ever stepped back and said, oh man, that's, that's pretty strong to say that uh, someone who can do nothing for you is as valuable as the person who could write you a check for a million dollars. That's power. Yeah. And, and the ability to see that, I think, is something that every person who is a believer should, uh, should wake up each day and say, uh, how, how can I today serve somebody? How can I exhibit the love of Jesus in the way that I conduct my business? And it's not something you, you cross up on your list. It, it ought to be something that is a natural, organic way of expressing uh, faith, and a true interest in another person. You know, for, for the, our listeners, um, and I mentioned in the opening that, that uh, I met Mike in 1992, I have to tell you that in my interactions with Mike, that I see the genuineness of what he's talking about here. You know, we, we, we lost track of each other for a number of years and then reconnected, I don't know, four or five years ago. I think it was after your first run for president. I don't know if you remember this, but I sent you an email. We got together, had lunch, and it was like mm-hmm. the same Mike Huckabee. The same Mike Huckabee I knew 14 years ago. Uh, he's run for president. He's been a governor for 11 years, done this, but the same unpretension, the same, you know, down to earth. Uh, and, that's really, I think, the highest compliment I could give you. I gave it to a friend of mine who served in Congress for 14 years, uh, who I, I felt was the same when he came back and hadn't been affected by this. So for those of you listening, Mike's not just speaking theoretically here. He really does live this, and, and I, I appreciate that, Mike, because it's a challenge. This is a challenge in this world of the cult of celebrity. There's no question about it that this is a huge challenge to live this way. It, it's important to me to hear something like that guy. And I tell you, I, I feel very strongly that the worst thing that ever could be said of me is that uh, becoming, and I, I'll use the word celebrity, and it's, it's kind of a silly word in a way, but to become someone that others recognize in a public place and come up to you and say, hi, I, I read your book and I loved it, or hey, would you sign this for, for me or my mother or whatever it may be? If I ever got to the place where I was offended or bothered with the fact that someone wanted to come up and talk to me, you know, I I tell you, that would break my heart. Nothing would disturb me more. And I'm going to explain why. I grew up dirt poor in South Arkansas. As a kid, I didn't have stuff. And if I wanted something, my parents couldn't afford to give it to me. So the way it worked in my family was, you worked for what you got. If I wanted a new baseball, I would collect pop bottles. 
I would sell cards door to door, greeting cards, or I would do what a lot of kids my age had to do when we were too young to get what I would call a legitimate job. We would be hired on at local farms to either haul hay in the summer or catch chickens in chicken houses and load them into crates. I got to tell you, guy, as a That's, kid, catching chickens all night long, I would all the time ask, what do I have to do so I don't have to do this for the rest of my life? And I would often hear, well, you're going to have to get a good education and work hard and prove yourself. And I thought, I don't know what else I'm going to do in life, but by golly, I'm going to get an education because I don't want to spend the rest of my life in a hot, smelly chicken oh. house in August grabbing chickens and getting scratched to pieces for a couple of pennies of chicken so I can get a baseball. It, it drove, though, in me this sense that, um, you know, life could be better. So now when I'm standing in some reception line, and maybe it's uh, before I'm going to make a speech to a thousand people at some event and the high donors are coming in and having their photo made, inevitably some sweet lady will come up to the photo line and she'll say, I know you just get so tired of this, just standing and taking these pictures. And I'll always lean down and say, darling, let me tell you something. I don't mind this a bit because I could be catching chickens and hauling <laughs> hay in Arkansas in a hot August day. And if all I have to do to make a living is stand up all dressed up with some really nice, sweet people, I've got nothing to complain about. So I look at it this way. The people who come up to me, whether it's on a plane or in a hotel lobby, and, and they say, are you Mike Huckabee? And I'll say, yes. And they'll say, oh, my goodness, I watched your show on TV, and I loved it. Uh, I've had people say, does that bother you when they come up in a restaurant and interrupt your meal? And I'll say, no, because those are my bosses. I work for them. Mm. If it weren't for those good people who watch me on TV or voted for me or read my books or uh, follow me on my website, get my newsletter every day. If it weren't for those people, I might still be catching those chickens. So I'm grateful to God. And it's, uh, it's something I never want to forget because I, 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 I know where I came from guy. I mean, yeah. it's not a, it's not a pretty picture. I'm the first male in my entire family lineage that ever graduated from high school to college. So I come from a long line of people who just struggle to make a barely a living and pay rent on a rent house, which is what I lived in until I was almost out of high school. Um, so it, it's never lost on me that God has blessed me beyond my wildest dreams. And for that, I'm extremely grateful, but I don't ever want to forget where I came from. And I never want to forget how grateful to God I need to be. Well, you, you you hit on something there that, and all the, and when I read, and I've read a lot of books on leadership, and I I, I study people who are leaders and do things because I want to I want to be all that God would have me to be as a servant leader, and I know it's a process, it's a journey, it's not a, it's not a destination. You haven't you don't arrive, you continue to grow and so on. Um, but you mentioned something there that I don't recall seeing, and I'm not saying it isn't out there, but in a kind of a tutorial for leadership, and that is gratitude. That, that having a grateful spirit actually helps unleash our leadership. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's, that's an, interesting, an interesting perspective there. Well, I, I say it oftentimes when I'm talking to groups about leadership. I'll say, um, you know, if your attitude is gratitude, 
it really will make a huge difference in how you approach life. And I just believe that another thing to, to remember is uh, our attitude determines our altitude. If we want to go upwards, our attitude will determine that altitude. And that attitude is an attitude of gratitude. If we look at our lives and say, life hasn't been fair. I've been cheated. People didn't treat me well. I should have had that job. I missed the promotion. Boy, we hear that all over the place today, don't we? Oh, in my case, I could say, you know, they didn't vote for me. I didn't get elected. I ran twice for president and I didn't get it either time. I could spend my life uh, thinking about the people who promised to do something that they didn't do, who in some cases, guy who lied to me, cheated me. You know, I want to learn from that and not be stupid and make the same mistake twice, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life being bitter and upset that something didn't happen that I had hoped would. I, I, again, I want to put it in perspective of that bashful little kid who grew up uh, on second street in Hope, Arkansas, that nobody thought would amount to anything. And when I step back and I say, you know, I can recall when I was eight years old, my dad said, son, I'm going to take you down to uh, hear the governor of the state make a speech because he's coming down in Death Lake and, you know, governors don't get down here to our part of the state very often. And, and I'm going to take you down there to hear him make a talk because, son, you may live your whole life and you may never see a governor in person. Well, that little eight-year-old boy, uh, you know, grew up to be the governor of the state. My dad would never have believed if somebody had told him, well, your son will live in the governor's mansion. My point in that, I just need to never, ever forget how grateful right. to right. God I need to be for the journey he's put me on. And I, I hope that other people, uh, to me, one of the roles of leadership is to say, you want to be a leader? Be willing to do, and this is a great point for me that I learned early in life. Good leaders do what other people are unwilling to do. And I think it was maybe, could have been Zig Ziglar that I heard that from probably 40 years ago. I, I can't remember for sure, but I know this, that it made a different life. And I thought, wow, that's pretty powerful. That successful people are the ones who are willing to do the things that unsuccessful people are, are not willing to do. Mm. So you have been in, so your background is, is, is a very, is a diverse tapestry in the ministry world, uh, in the in state government, uh, run for president, in the media, has your own television show. Along the way, I, and you alluded to this a moment about people who you know lied, cheated, and so on. You've had, I'm sure, your fair of pe- fair share of people who have been critical, who've leveled criticisms at you. Uh, maybe they were fair, maybe they're unfair. What would you say to our listeners with respect to this issue of leadership? How we should deal with criticism that's going to inevitably come our way if we are in positions of leadership where we have to make decisions, other people are, are looking to us, not everybody's going to agree with us on every single thing. How should we deal with the criticisms that come our way? Guy, the most important thing is to not dwell on them and do not let them get out of perspective and out of balance because for every critic, 
there are a lot of people who feel very differently, maybe who are very complimentary and, uh, you know, who actually like you. I, I think the big danger is to let that go to heart. Most people who are, who are bitter, who are critical, uh, who are mean, they are because of their own self-noticed deficiencies. It's not that they really see the flaws in you. Uh, they see them in themselves, and they need to bring everybody back down to the level where they consider themselves to be. So there's a, there's a need, you know, to, to listen to what your – I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said, love your enemies. They're the only ones that may have the uh, uh, fortitude to tell you the truth. <laughs> but they're also not going to tell you all the truth. Right. So there's a need to, to hear and say, is what they said true? But if you assess and say, no, it isn't, then forget about it. Just let it roll off. A biblical example of that is, is uh, David when he was a boy, and he went to take some supplies down to his brothers. And it was the first time that, that he saw Goliath that he would later slay. But he went down to his brothers and in the military camp, and they, everybody was talking about this giant and how he was uh, so powerful and nobody could defeat him. And David said, who is this giant? What is all this talk? And they basically said, you're just a kid. Don't worry about it. It's way above your head. And the scripture says in Samuel, it says, and from them to another. And there's a really interesting point in that is that when they were telling him that he was worthless, that he had no business even dealing with something of consequence like Goliath, he didn't argue with them, and he didn't say, oh, well, I guess you're right. I, I just need to roll it up and quit and go back home and take care of the sheep. He turned to another, and he said, and what will be done for the person who kills Goliath? And that's when they said, oh, you'll marry the king's daughter. Uh, you know, you'll never pay taxes, and you'll be given land to own. And it was at that point that King David said, at that point, Shepherd David, it was at that point that he said, then who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would right. defy the armies right. of God? His courage was not brought about uh, by the, the giant. It was brought about by the promises of great things that he might have if he was able to get through the giant. So the, the lesson there is if there's something in life that you want or something you want to accomplish, uh, you're not going to be motivated because of the fear of the obstacles. You're going to be motivated by the rewards and the results that await on the other side of the obstacles. And that's what will give you the power to get through those obstacles. So, so thinking about obstacles, so you took over as governor of Arkansas after um, uh, Jim Guy Tucker resigned back in what year was that Mike again? It was 1996, 96. summer of 96. Summer of 96, okay. You, uh, you were the first Republican governor since Reconstruction. Am I, not, am I correct on that? Well, I was the third governor. Uh, Winthrop Rockefeller had a brief period in the 60s. Okay. And then uh, Frank White had a two-year term. But I was the first uh, governor in 25 years, only the f uh, fourth Republican who had ever been elected to a statewide office since Reconstruction. Okay, okay. And so, ended up serving longer than all of the other governors combined. And uh, so by the time I became governor, our legislature was the most lopsided in the entire nation. More than Vermont or California or Massachusetts or Maine, 
we had 89 out of 100 of the House members who were Democrats, and we had 31 out of 35 senators who were Democrats. So I walked into an incredibly hostile environment, to say the least. Right. And that's what I wanted to get into for a moment, because you went into a you went into a very difficult situation, a lot of obstacles, a lot of hostility. Uh, what did you learn? What would you say are the, the couple of things that you most found valuable in what you learned in, say, the first year, 18 months you were in that position? Do you recall? One thing that was clearly a lesson learned was that uh, you, you find the people who want to help you solve problems and don't spend too much time fighting the ones who just want to just totally gum up the works. I'll give an example. Um, one of the just horrible experiences of every Arkansas car tags renewed may seem like a small thing, <laughs> but it always involved going to seven different offices the, all over oh town. Gosh. And then standing in a line at the <laughs> revenue office to get a car tag. And I used to joke and say, anyone who could ever simplify this process and make it easy would be elected governor for life. Well, I was determined that we were going to fix that car tag system because I personally hate it as much as everybody else to get car tags too. So I instituted the policy for all of my executive uh, members of the team who worked for my staff as well as for official in my government. And here's what I said. At least half a day every six weeks, you need to go out to a place of delivery of state government. You need to work at the level, uh, either entry level, someplace, not sitting in an office, but you need to work uh, alongside state employees who do the things you're asking them to do. So, one of the, I did it myself, and, and one of the first endeavors I did was to go to a revenue office, and I worked for a day with people who worked at that revenue office helping people get through their car tags. So during a break in, in the day, I asked the people who'd worked there, most of whom had been there for anywhere from 15 to 32 years, and I said, if you could be king for the day and you could fix this system and make it better, what would you do? And I just sat and listened and took notes. Because the truth is, most of the good solutions are not being made by people at the top. If you would listen, the best ideas are going to come from the people who have to do the horrible part of the job that right. they know is inefficient. They're on the front so lines. Listen to them. They're That's the exactly front. right. Dealing with it every day. Yep. So I listened to them. I took notes. We went back, brought my team together, and we said, how do we implement these ideas we, we found that there were some problems to have to sort through. We worked through those and figured out a way to solve them. Net result, we got it passed. Um, ended up taking from a long process that sometimes would take people all day and hours of frustration where it could be done on the internet in less than four minutes. Uh, it required no visit to any government office. Everything could be done online. And this was at a time when online was fairly new. It was a really revolutionary thing. And it cost a dollar less than it cost before. Um, you would think that everybody would be in favor of that. Right. But there were people who were not, be, not because they didn't believe it was a good idea. 
they didn't want me to get credit for it. And I had to learn an important lesson that you can't fix those people. Uh, But the thing you do is you find people who are more interested in the solution than they are in uh, getting it done by their particular uh, political party. But those who do help you, which obviously I had to have a lot of Democrats who would help me get that. Right. When they do, acknowledge them publicly. Right. Go to their Rotary Club in their hometown and stand up and say, I'm so grateful for uh, Senator Guy Rogers, who uh, went beyond his party line and helped us get something. So if you enjoy being able to get your car tag in less than four minutes on a line, then go up and shake the hand of your local senator without whom this couldn't have happened. Now, I did two things when I did that. First of all, I showed gratitude for what he had done. Secondly, what I really found was that the next time I asked him for something, it wasn't so difficult to get him to do it because he knew that rather than go and say something tacky about him in his hometown, I'd be willing to go and say something nice about him. And heck, his Democrat governors before often wouldn't do that. Boy, that's, you know, I think about that. And I think of the, the frustration that I, I've experienced, that I know people have experienced in dealing with regulatory agencies. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, have, I know someone right now who is probably going to have his business shut down because of some onerous, difficult, I mean, the, the story is mind-boggling, Mike. It's mind-boggling. Could we, what would happen if, if a president said to his cabinet agencies, you know what, one of the things we're going to do is what you're talking about right here. So you get out there and see the people have to deal with this every day. I think people would stand up and cheer and, and they would do it regardless of political party. Uh, that, to me, that's leadership. That's wow. Well, it ought to work that way. That's the way government is supposed to function uh, so that we recognize we have differences. Our parties have different points of view and philosophy. Uh, I'll give you an example. When, um, when I was running for re-election of governor for my second term, second full term back in 2002, there was a guy who was going to be the incoming speaker of the house who had been a real pain in my backside. I mean, a total <laughs> obstructionist. And so in his running for reelection, I thought, you know, if this guy's the speaker, it's going to make my next uh, couple of years in the legislative session just miserable. He had a very fine Republican opponent uh, that was willing to take him on. So I went and helped this guy. I mean, I campaigned for him. I donated to him. I helped raise money for him, did events for him. I did everything I could to try to make sure that that incoming speaker was defeated, but I failed. Well, while that speaker got elected, he was doing everything he could to make sure I didn't get elected. (laughs) And he campaigned for my opponent and vigorously endorsed my opponent and, uh, you know, was not exactly complimentary of me as a governor. When the election was over, I called for a meeting with him. He came in and I said, Bill, I'll be honest with you. I did everything I knew to do uh, to keep you from being the speaker and, and winning your election. And quite honestly, you probably did most of the things that you knew to do to keep me from being 
in this seat where I am. And I said, but the election's over. And I said, for reasons I don't really understand, the same voters who elected me also elected you. And they must expect us somehow to work together. So I just wanted you to know that at this point, I'd really prefer that you become the best Speaker of the House that we've ever seen. And I don't know that there's any downside for you if I become a very effective governor. I said, so people always are trying to uh, bait us into saying things, in newspapers and in the press, sure. getting us to make comments. I said, here's my promise to you. I will not say anything about you until I've picked up the phone or come up this. But personally, I would ask of you to do the same. Bottom line is he and I got along great. Didn't always agree, but when we didn't, it was all respectful, and it was always because there was really a difference of view, and there may have been some issue that he just couldn't help on because of uh, his own uh, local needs or whatever. Right, right. But we never had a – and it was the way it's supposed to be. Well, we've got a few minutes here. What would you say is – the number one thing that will hold people back from realizing the leadership potential that God has called them to? What, what would that look like? How would you describe that? I, I think there are two different poles that will keep people from being the leader God wants them to be. And they're, they're sort of the North and South pole. On one side, it's arrogance. It's the sense of, right. I deserve this. Um, how dare they not make me the leader? That's one thing. But on the opposite end, it's that person who is so lacking in any self-confidence and maybe even believes falsely that if he puts himself down, that that's humility. Right. But an important lesson I learned about humility, humility is not running yourself down to the point that you're constantly living in fear of attempting something great because a person who is always telling you how uh, terrible he is and how worthless he is and how unworthy he is, that person actually is filled with pride. It's a negative version of it, but it's pride in always focusing upon his, uh, himself or herself. Real humility is looking at yourself with an honest view of saying, you know, I'm not the best, but I'm not the worst. God loves me as I am. He knows everything about me, even things I don't know about myself. And he's got a plan for me, and I need to be in on it. And I think when people understand humility is not running yourself down, nor is it building yourself up, it's having a healthy view of who you are, the gifts God's given you, and the tasks to which he's called you, and get about doing it. That, to me, is how we're supposed to live our lives. I was asked uh, by a young member of my staff some years ago if I could share with him my thoughts on kind of the two or three key things to leadership. And one of the things I said to him was a, an always growing sense of self-awareness. Hmm. Because, and that's, that's, I'm referring to what you're talking about there, because the person who is arrogant 
I mean, we all suffer with, I mean, let's face it, you know, we live in a sinful, broken world. So we all suffer with degrees of that at times. So no matter how we're trying to grow in Christ, we can be, you know, we can be subject to that. But I like what you talk about the opposite, the two polar extremes here. Both of those individuals are, are not self-aware. Yep. They're not self-aware. They don't recognize the one is, the one is a, a false bravado and the other is a false modesty. So I thank you. That's, that's good pointing that out. And that means that says to us, one of the keys to leadership is to grow in self-awareness and we grow in self-awareness by being teachable. We're teachable by virtue of putting ourselves at the feet of God and around other people who will help us in that regard. So uh, Mike, I really appreciate um, you taking the time out of, I know it was a really, really full, very full schedule. Thank you, my friend for joining us uh, and sharing your insights with us today. Guy, it has been a real pleasure visiting with you, and I uh, certainly remember back our early meetings way back in 1992, and it's good to catch up and also to know that we're basically both still the same guys we were. Sure trying, and I'll tell you, listeners, Mike was instrumental in, in uh, encouraging me to launch uh, a career as a political consultant. There's a story <laughs> behind that where he really encouraged me, and it came as a result of your run for, was it Senate 92, I think, in Arkansas? That's right, U.S. Senate. And we back talked in 1992. About, we, talked, we talked about you know your race, your consultant, and you really encouraged me. And I don't know if you remember this, but you wrote the first endorsement for my uh, my promotional brochure when I launched my own firm in 1994. So I never forgot that. So thank well, you again. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. Good to talk to you, guy. God bless you. For those of you that are that are with us today, I just want to remind you to check out our website, PinnacleForum.com. And uh, you can find out more about who we are. And if you'd like to uh, schedule a call with me, if you want to find out more about Pinnacle Forum, you can go to the About tab and scroll down to Leadership, and there's a place where you can do that. And this month, other guests we're going to be seeing uh, during this time uh, include uh, Ted Baer, who's the president of Movie Guide, David Benham. You may remember some of you that he and his brother uh, were involved in a a difficult time with HGTV TV, who uh, dumped their show over their stands regarding traditional marriage. And Daryl Bach, who is the executive director of the Center for Cultural Leadership at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, again, thank you, Mike. Thank you all for listening us listening uh, to this latest episode of Unleashing Your Leadership.